What's your strategy to reach out to hard to reach people? Need tips? Want to know what it takes to grow a seven digit digital marketing agency, how to run a podcast or how to position your book to get the most bang for your buck? Wherever you are in life, learning how to break through the walls that are between where you are now, not a strong network, unable to write, unsure what to write or starting a business to where you want to be is critical. You can save yourself a lot of headache and heartache by walking a mile in this guest's shoes. That's why I love this episode. It's a media interview with Nick Hutchinson, founder of BookThinkers, a growing seven-figure digital marketing agency that serves mission-driven authors. His podcast, BookThinkers, Life-Changing Books, features captivating interviews with world-class authors such as Grant Cardone, Lewis Howes, and Alex Hormwitz. Let's get into this and stay curious on this episode of Learning with Lowell. All right, then I'm hitting record. And we now have exactly an hour and 15 minutes. So the first question I have for you, and there's... Don't worry about the intro and outro. I'm going to handle it on my own, especially since we're running out of time. So you have a podcast. It's called the Book Thinkers Life-Changing Books, which is great. You know, book, book, book. And you have a great background like we just discussed. You've had a lot of really cool people on there like Craig Cardone, Lewis Howes, uh, Alex Horowitz, etc. And so as someone who has a podcast, and many people listen in are often message me asking me questions about the, ba- the behind the scenes of doing a podcast. What does it take to get a guest like that? What type of like structure do you do? What's your process? Have you ever heard of the book, The Third Door? By Alex Benayan? No. What's that? Okay, so the third door is a metaphor for reaching hard-to-reach people. We'll use a nightclub. So he says, for a nightclub, there's always three ways to get in. Door number one is general admission. So you pay a cover. Maybe they don't even let you in. There's a line that wraps around the building. That's what most people try to do when they reach out to -to hard-to-reach people. They just send a DM or something like that. Door number two is the VIP entrance. And in the VIP entrance, you've got to pay a huge cover. You got to buy a big table. You got to be famous. And most of us, when we're first starting a podcast or a social media account, we don't have that VIP status, right? We're not famous yet. But there's always a third door. And in the case of a nightclub, that might mean breaking in the kitchen window, army crawling through the back and coming in through the back door. But the end result is the same. You're still in the nightclub. So I think a lot of these people, they have a third door. They have a creative, fun way that you can engage with them that 99% of people are ignoring. And so I was able to get the early momentum for my podcast by getting very hard to reach, very smart, very popular people so that it'd be easier to get the next guest and the next guest because they'd say, hey, if Grant Cardone was on his show and he values his time at $500,000 an hour, I should probably say yes too. And then they'll just bypass any due diligence that they would have done otherwise. Yeah, that makes sense. That that tracks with what I know as well. So for Grant Cardone, since the last person you just mentioned, what was his third door? Assuming it's not encrypted or whatever. No, it's not encrypted. I'll try to be brief with the story, but I tried DMing him on Instagram like 10 times. He didn't look at anything. I tried promoting his books. He didn't look at anything. I tried to provide value first by getting his stuff in front of my audience. Didn't work. So I was browsing around one of his websites and I found a spot where you could check a box essentially that said, yeah, I'm willing to spend $25,000 to have them do a virtual keynote at my event or for my mastermind or something. So I'm like, okay, at least if I check this box, then I'll get the nomenclature of how they build their emails. At any point in this conversation, if you find value in it, please subscribe. It is hugely beneficial and it tells Google and everyone out there that this is content worth watching. Thank you for everyone thus far who has commented, liked, subscribed, and told their friend. I checked that box. I submitted something. And then, of course, I his team reaches out to me and I say, hey, pulled up. I don't have any money <laughs> to spend for an interview, but I do have an audience and my audience would love to hear from Grant. And I knew Grant has a little bit of an ego, which is okay. So I would stroke it a little bit. I was like, most of my audience, these are young sales professionals, young business owners. They don't know who he is. So I want to introduce Grant to them for the first time. He could sell whatever he wants on the pie. Anyway, they shut it down like 10 times in a row, but I was persistent. And eventually they said yes. So I had Grant on for a virtual interview. And I think here's where the real third door happens. I have Grant on for a virtual interview. He didn't end up actually selling anything, which was nice. I thought he would just hammer my audience with some type of upsell or something. And at the end of 30 minutes, I was still recording and he's starting to pack up. And I said, hey, Grant, I'm going to be down in Miami, which is where he's located. I said, I'm going to be down in Miami for a couple of months. Do you want to do another in-person show? Because we had such a great time. And he's, yeah, sure, man. That sounds great. So I clipped that and I sent it to his team. Now, secret, I wasn't going to be in Miami at all, but I wanted to go hang out with him. 
So I sent it to his team and I said, pick any time in the next three months and I'll be there. And so his team picked the time. I was like, wow, they're actually saying yes to this. Then I booked my tickets and I went to Miami. And so I fly to Miami and I spend like a, a half a day filming content with Grant and his wife and a bunch of other people. And it was such a beautiful experience. And just having those pictures, it helps me bypass that due diligence process with so many other people because trust is transitive. If you trust Grant, which millions of people do, and Grant trusts me because we're hanging out together, then you'll trust me as well. And so I've used that formula to go out there and continue to get bigger and bigger guests. And that Grant Cardone thing of clipping a little bit of his, him saying yes and then booking a trip, maybe fibbing a little bit to saying that I was going to be in Miami. It's a good example of the third door. No, it's really smart. You mentioned persistence and saying 10 times. Was it over the phone or was it email following up? I think it was actually a little bit of both, but it was mostly email. Yeah, this is something that people often talk to me about, how to have a follow-up email that isn't just like, hey, because I get tons of terrible follow-up emails. I have, I have a newsletter where sometimes I make fun of them a little bit, and, and good fun. I'm, I redact their information, but the, how do you have a good follow-up email that isn't just, hey, did you get the first one? Because hey, there's so many frustrating ways to get a follow-up email. Oh, yeah. You might know better strategies than me, but here's the first thing that I think about. Being a surgeon with my words. Surgeons don't make extra cuts while performing surgery because it's unnecessary. Salespeople shouldn't use extra words when selling. It's unnecessary. So I try to be short, punchy, and create curiosity. I think a good follow-up email, the best format that I have is something like, like, hey, Lowell, I've emailed you a few times with no response. What's the next step? Question mark. Or, you know, dot, what would you like me to do? And typically that per it triggers a little bit of guilt and uh, that person's more likely to follow up with me. Sometimes I like to also say, I'm just looking for an answer. It's okay if the answer is no, I'm really hoping that it's yes. I feel like I can provide a ton of value for you. Dot, what's the answer? Just yeah. making it simple for people so that they just don't click delete. What about you? What are some of your favorite strategies? For follow-up, it depends on the person who I'm speaking with. It's like a really nerdy person and I know what they're nerdy about. Similar to you, I have a, I research it and I'll send them a follow-up like, hey, I was reading this. Here's a section that you I think you'd like in particular. And, and just like explain what I think they like about it. And usually, oh, this is really great. I want to continue the conversation. And then my process for scheduling is, is very simple. So most people, when they're being approached, it's like now that, they, now that they're at it, yes, it takes them a bit of back and forth. Like sometimes it takes up to seven emails just to find like the right time. Me, it takes 30 seconds. So if I can get the person to see, I think of it more, can I help them see that I'm worth them spending their time on? Can I show them that I'm not just spamming them and put time into them? And so that's roughly my like my meta, how I email and do follow-ups is can I show that I've done my homework and I do try to be as minimalist as possible so that th there are times where you, if you get like a huge paragraph, it's like, oh my God, that's a lot of energy. I have so many other things to do. So if you can have it like a nice readable thing, it's very punchy, like you said, and to me, it's just demonstrating, has this person put any fucking thought into talking to me or, or me to them, vice versa? And that seems to be the formula that works. I think my response rate for intransigent people is like you're 80% or higher. Like I don't mass a lot of people. I just am very targeted who I speak to. And at the same time, I usually know a little bit about what they're up to so I can be very tailored in terms of like my follow-ups and stuff. Yeah, I think that's great advice. My formula, if I'm leveraging social media, is typically... And again, now that my audience is a little bit bigger, I don't have to use the third door all the time to get to get in front of hard to reach people. But I love to say congratulations on, I interview authors, so congratulations on the upcoming release of your book. I've helped authors like, and then I insert three people they follow. Because on Instagram, you can click who somebody follows and if there's mutual people there. And I'll reference the biggest names, right? So if I see somebody follows... Grant Cardone, Lewis House, and Alex Hormozier, whoever. I'll just mention, congratulations on the upcoming release of your book. I've helped authors like XYZ, or I've interviewed authors like XYZ. And I put people they're familiar with so they can bypass the due diligence. Normally, those names are bigger than them. So if Grant said yes, I should probably say yes too. If all my friends are doing it, I should do it too. And then uh, I mentioned something about my audience size or the number of impressions. And then I'll just drop my Calendly link. And just like yeah. you, once they're at a yes, you make it as easy as possible. And the next step's pretty obvious. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's the, so when you're at the point of having the interview, something that I'm working on personally, and my, I have a QA for like people who listen to the show after, before it goes live to let me know if I miss anything. But one thing that has been commented to me is like how to get people, how to push people when they're just giving you fluff. Like when you were talking to Grant, for instance, and you were concerned, was this going to be a fluff sales conversation? How do you prepare or structure yourself so that you don't have that type of takeaway? Because there's been, there was a person on here and I told him this, my, I, I, don't, I don't mind mentioning this publicly, but the person was, the person was like all sales. And I tried my best to get him to stop doing because it, it was terrible. Like the QA people said that they would find where I lived and yell at me if I put the episode up. So I might put it like just for memberships because it was that way. But how do you make, how do you get it so that it can be a valuable conversation versus someone who just has, I think like about 10 to 15 minutes of a talking point and just wants to run around in that circle? Yeah, I interviewed an author who was like a legend in the book space, business book space a while back. And he did the same thing. He just, he sold, he brought everything back to his new offer. Every question I, I asked him, he would ramble for a while and then he would sell. And you know what I did? I clipped it out. I, I removed all of the, uh, every time he brought it back to a sale, I clipped it out. So the interview went live with none of his sales pitch. And uh, so how do I avoid that? I think a couple of things. Number one, I'm, I'm going to answer your question from the perspective of a guest because mm-hmm. I've been on, I've been on a bunch of shows in anticipation of this book launch. And so I have a different respect for the person sitting in this, on this side of the chair rather than just hosting shows. What lights me up, what gets me deeper into a subject is when somebody demonstrates that they have done a little bit of research. And by the way, I am guilty of not doing a deep dive on every person that I interview. But when somebody says, hey, Nick, like I had somebody tell me recently, they're like, Nick, I was checking out your personal Instagram. I scrolled back. I was on one of your travel stories. I zoomed in on a tattoo that I never, I've never seen you talk about it on social media. So I'm going to read it to everybody. And why don't you tell me the significance? And I'm like, that makes me feel good because that is not a cut and paste question. Now we are way in the weeds on something I know I've never talked about. And now I'm interested in telling that story because I feel like respected instead of just cookie cutter question answer. And by the way, we're already on subjects like this meta podcasting thing that I never talk about on shows. So I think we're already doing that here today. But that's from a guest perspective, if you can deter away from the sales conversation and get into their personal life a little bit and bring things up that make them feel like, wow, this guy Lowell really does his research, man. That's so cool. I'll forget my whole sales pitch. Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense. The at the same time, this leads to something I got from your book that sometimes I ask at the end of my uh, interviews, what's some books that you enjoy? And you point out that it's not, if someone asks you this question, to you you more ask a question back saying, hey, what's the problem you're going through or whatever to like more tailor it? And so I was wondering, I'm like, I think I'm like quoting you verbatim, but though I have a bunch of quotes from your book, but for some reason I put quotes around this. So it's in the, you're choosing the wrong book section, but I start by doing a personal inventory, which helps me decide what I want to read and why. And it had me thinking of that in conjunction with what I just said of what was the last time you were trying to work through a challenge or something like that? And then what was your like your book structure to read to get through that challenge? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm guilty of designing a business where I'm paid to read <laughs> from authors. So a lot of the books that a lot of the books that I'm reading, I'm not setting the best intention for. So I'm a little bit guilty as far as that's concerned. But I do have an example from recently. So as my business continues to grow, bottlenecks become clear, right? I have 10 people on my team. We are serving hundreds of authors a year now within my digital marketing agency. And so certain things become a bottleneck. You solve that issue within your business. Something else reveals itself. Like a business owner is always putting out fires or continuing to grow and solve new problems. And so recently I realized that our lead generation stinks. It really does. Mm -hmm. We only leverage one or two forms of outbound lead generation, and we almost have nothing that's automated. We don't use paid ads, nothing like that. Our landing pages stink. There are no funnels. And so that was a problem that became very clear to me. And so as I'm analyzing that problem and looking for a solution, coincidentally, an author that I respect a lot was in the middle of putting out a book on lead generation. It's called $100 Million Leads. And so I identified the problem that I'd like to solve. I found a good book from somebody that I know I already like. And I think that's important. He thinks the same way that I think. And so I've had success with his other books. 
Now he's putting out a book that can solve an immediate problem in my life. And I decided to read that book, set an intention, do the whole thing. And yeah, that's an example, for instance. But I, there are so many, there are so many other processes to go through in that personal inventory. Are you attending an event where somebody is speaking and you can impress them if you read their books? Do your mentors recommend something based on their understanding of where you're at and, and the macro perspective that they have? Are there problems that you're currently facing, skill sets that you want to develop, and a whole bunch of other positioning questions? Yeah. No, I like that. Was, there's sometimes when I read a self help book, I'm a little concerned in terms of how fluffy it's going to be versus how meaty it's going to be. And I, I think there was rarely a page, I'm about like a third way through, I'm finished it this weekend, but about a third to 40% of the way through, there was rarely a page that went by there where there wasn't something I could actually take away. There was like, there was a lot of aha moments like, why don't I put an intention on the beginning of the book? Why? Like, I'm a little, I know, like you say that you're fine with doing this, but like, I don't know if I tear a page out, but uh, <laughs> like, I'm generally Here, curious. Can, like, I, can I freak everybody out real quick? Oh God. I'm going to send this uh -oh. to my wife. She hates this. Oh. <laughs> terrible this is such a nice Here. book yeah and i just picked a random page too i just had this author on my podcast so he won't mind but let's look at it so fear leads to anger anger leads to hate hate leads to suffering master yoda that's the quote on yeah. the page right there mm -hmm. when the book i'll carry around pages with me so i can repeat the information all day but sorry for the distraction i appreciate the compliment though on the actionability of the book yes yeah it's i really don't think there is a page or two that goes by where there isn't something actionable that you can take away. And that's from someone who reads a lot like myself. I am curious when it goes back to the lead generation thing, what did you do to alleviate that problem? Or are you still in the midst of it? I'm still in the midst of it. So here is the goal for the book. The goal. So the intention for the book is find and implement at least two lead generation strategies for book thinkers by the end of September. So I still have a little bit more time to execute this. Setting the intention for the book puts your mind into the right headspace to identify opportunities to close that gap. If the intention can be specific, measurable, attainable, relevant to your life, your business kind of gets you emotionally tied to it and time bound, like you throw a deadline on that intention, it's even better. And so for me, that intention of find and implement two lead generation strategies by the end of the month is specific. It's measurable. I know whether or not the book has achieved its goal for me. It's realistic action. I'm not saying let's generate a million bucks by the end of the month, but let's find and implement two things. It's relevant to my business. I told you it's solving a problem and I give myself a, a time limit. And so what's funny is I wish, I wish I was, I talk about smart goals later in the book, which you'll find, but I wish I was a little bit more intentional about putting that smart goal framework in the section where I talk about intention. So that was a missed opportunity on my part, but that's what my process looks like. And then when I'm done with the book, I might have 10, 15 things that I've identified. And so I'll rewrite them as a form of repetition. And then I'll look at them and I'll say, you know what? Not every potential action is created equally. 20% of these are probably worth more than the other 80%. 20% of these might drive 80% of the potential change I'm looking for. And they might be easier to implement too. And so not every action is created equal. And I'll just choose to implement a handful of things from the book because otherwise it can get overwhelming. Okay. So a couple of thoughts on that. So first, who is, so not everyone is born equal in terms of as a, an audience person coming in as lead gen, who is your ideal uh, person that you want coming in? Like how big of a person, what type of book? I, I imagine there's like a pocket, like a budget and stuff like this that you're looking for. And maybe there's some people listening right now. Who is that ideal person that you want to get down at the bottom of the funnel? Yeah. So for my business, my target client is a mission-driven author, a mission-driven personal development style author. So their book is meant to be read and implemented that uses their book as a lead mechanism for a higher ticket complimentary product or service like coaching, consulting, speaking, mm -hmm. something like that. So the way that my services are priced, there's no ROI potential directly from book sales. There is. But most of the ROI potential comes from selling some books. People read those books. They check out that author's social media or website. They realize that person has a deeper engagement available. You can hire them to speak. They'll do some coaching or consulting, right, related to the book subject. And that's always where the ROI comes from, right? Those services are much bigger and they're profitable. 
We have a few different services available, but I would say rough ballpark, anywhere from $3,000 up to $25,000 as an initial engagement. That's the range with which our services are available. Mm-hmm. And what is the, uh, do you guys have like a, a book on what's the typical ROI that a person can have? If they put 25000 in, what would they expect back as the return? That's a great question. We don't because the services that book is a lead mechanism for vary so much. Sometimes mm-hmm. the ROI is break even, but then they grow their socials and sell a bunch of books and meet a bunch of new people as part of that process. Sometimes the ROI can be 5x. So it just depends on who that person is, what their business looks like, what they're using their book for. And the ROI, I think, ranges based on what their existing ecosystem looks like. Because at the same time, even within my target users, there's a wide range of existing businesses and and followers and stuff. Can I give a cool example of of niche pricing? Mm -hmm. Because I think this is really important. I read this in a book, $100 Million Offers, so the predecessor to this Leeds book. But the author says something like this. Imagine you have a car wash. You can price that car wash at $25. But all of a sudden, what if it was a car wash that only accepted German cars? Same car wash, but now you can charge $50 because it's a little bit more exclusive. You're niching down. Oh, wait a second. What if it only did Mercedes? Now it's a $100 car wash, same experience, but instead of 25 bucks, you're getting $100. What if it only did AMG G-Wagons one a day? Now you can charge $2,000 for the same car wash experience. And so when I talk about my target user, my services could be leveraged by anybody, but I know that for the right person, I can charge a lot more and there's more ROI potential because of the size of their business and what they're using their book for. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. I think sometimes people think when they hear something like that, is the Mercedes getting a, a, a better deal than the person would have been 25? The difference is if you're charging $2,000 per uh, car wash, for instance, you probably have a little bit more quality people doing that work. Like you mentioned earlier, you have 10 people helping out push these things. Imagine if it was like you only put $1,000 into that book launch or all the services you do, the limitations you have, it was just yourself. Like you maybe do one a month, but there's much more of a scale and quality that you can do by charging these higher prices. And being very niche yes. what you want to do and how you want to achieve it. Yeah, that makes sense. And I know so, it sounds goofy and it, it sounds funny, but one of the fastest ways to increase the value that you provide is by increasing your pricing. Because a higher price, there's this inherent feeling of more value. Think yeah, of yeah. like luxury clothing brands and stuff. It doesn't cost most of them much more money to generate the product, the piece of clothing, the t-shirt or whatever. But they're, people feel better wearing them because there's inherent value to the price tag. So yeah, it's a lot about branding sometimes. No, I, I agree. I think the pricing is like a, almost like a metaphor for people sometimes. I think that when you respect yourself, people respect you as well. I, I think sometimes people think like, why is Debbie treating me this way or Bob treating me this way or whatever? And it's how, you, how, do you, how are you responding as they treat you that way? Is it like, yeah, I expect to be treated like mud or is it I'm great and I respond as if they're treating something great like mud, which then they respond differently. I think pricing is the same way. You're just the more often than not when people respect themselves and I, I i'm thinking like dozens of examples right now of small friend groups of business of just going through school with people that i know who started respect themselves a little bit better and they went from being like the third wheel in a in a group to being one of the people that makes decisions where people go to for their thought and, and uh insight pricing i think is like a, like a synonym or a metaphor for that that type of thing where so for a lot for most people listening in maybe they don't deal with pricing they don't deal with making these type of value-based judgments but there is a judgment that they do every single day, which is how are they pricing themselves in terms of how they respect themselves? If, mm-hmm. if their boss is treating them a certain way, are they allowing it? I know, I know people work at Pizza Hut restaurants and they had tyrants for owners, but because of how they carried themselves, they wouldn't tyrant on them. They would tyrant on other people who were easier, for lack of a better word. So I see it synonymous in that way and still something that can be translated to the average person listening in and that if you respect yourself, if you can find a way to have genuine confidence in yourself, and then slowly change the way you allow people or th- that you treat yourself, like raising your price and expecting like a higher value because of it. People do treat you be- uh, differently because of it. Like when you walk down the street, do you stand tall and all these different things? If you go in and do a sales call and you're looking at the ground, you're not looking in the eye and all this shifty stuff. Like, I can't imagine unless you're like, everyone already knows you're like, great. You can be a little quirky. Uh, like you said, like, the trust uh, translates or whatever. But I have seen that as well. If you can raise your price 
it all I think it's that Tim Ferriss, I think I first read it from Tim Ferriss where he raised his price, he lost some customers, but the customers that stayed were very happy. The lower your price point, the more likely people are to complain and bother you, which is and you're not really like no one's getting the value of their time if someone's complaining, unless there's like a valuable complaint. One thousand percent. Yeah. And as like one of my favorite human beings on the planet, I quote him a couple of times in my book. And yeah, I owe a lot to that guy from a distance. I don't know Tim. He doesn't know who I am, but Tim's amazing. I'll clip that section up and I'll just start uh, pinging him on the wall <laughs> and see if I can get you to have him on the show or uh, vice versa. Well, I had an author. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. You had an author. I had an author over here the other night. His name is Noah Kagan. And he hung out at my house for a couple of hours and he was, he just nonchalantly was telling a story about how he and Tim were in Argentina together and they're like really good friends and stuff. And I was sitting there thinking, do I make the ask for him to FaceTime Tim right now? <laughs> but I didn't. I was like, oh, that, that would have been so cool. But yeah, clip this, send it to Tim, have everybody in your audience tag him and maybe he'll see it. We'll see. Yeah. We'll get a concerted effort. But I was thinking as well, if you wanted a, like a specific author to know that you wanted them to work with you, you could have your whole audience leave a review. Hey, I, I got, I heard from this from Nick. He also does a podcast. It's like the first like two sentences and then like leave the review. They'd probably get it up there like a letter writing campaign to senators. But yes. no, there was a, an inch, I was lit. I don't remember where I got this information, but the, they were talking about thumbnails on the videos he makes. Cause he makes like these kind of outlandish ones where he goes up to people and asks them where he makes his money. And there's a thumbnail, which is very catchy, but it was staged after the fact and doesn't involve any of the people in it. So a lot of times I think huh. when people hear of packaging and marketing, they think, oh, he just took that of the of him walking up to the house, I think it is of, or a lady walking up to the house. But the, the lady, the house is not the right house. The lady is not the lady. And and no nobody knows that apparently. But it's a very nice thumbnail. It still captures what it is about authentically. So it just translates really nicely. But he's a really smart marketing guy and sales guy. Yeah, he is. And he's also yeah. just a normal, fun conversationalist. And it's so funny. I only met him last week. He hit me up because he has a book coming out in January. I don't know if the, if he's talked about that or not. But And I said, hey, if you're ever in the Boston area, feel free to come by. And he's, I'll be there next week. I'm like, feel free to come by. So it's just so funny. I only just got connected with him the other day, but he's a cool dude. The uh, in, in your book, related to another author, which I think you had on your show, Ryan Holiday, and Robert Crane, I think they both do these things. One got it from the other, but they talk about theming their notes as well. In in the book, you do discuss how you do keep track of where they come from and that type of thing. But um, I am wondering about your concept of theming. Like when you take your notes, how do you organize them in such a way? Because like how Ryan and uh, I just said his name, Robert, they Robert, do their note cards yeah. and they organize it all. It's genius. It's so smart. So I'm just curious. You seem to have, you seem to take information and then twist it and make it your own. And so I'm curious how you, took, you twisted it and made your own in there. Yeah, and I love both of those guys. And I have some fun third door stories around them as well. I think what happened is Robert said yes to my podcast. And then I told Ryan and Ryan was like, well, if Robert said yes, I have to as well. And so I had them both yeah. on within the same two week period or something like that. And they're very good with their research. I think much better than I am as far as organization and, and the storing of information. But Here's what I like to do. So I've taken all of this potential action. I've detailed it. I've located the 20% of actions or notes that I'd like to take and implement directly into my life. And then this has changed a lot over the t over time, but I use Evernote, an online notebook. And not only do I rewrite my notes as another form of repetition, but you can also set up little tags. So I'll try to, if a, if a note is about negotiation, you can tag it with negotiation. If a note is about personal finance, you can tag it with personal finance. And then those are searchable. So let's say I'm walking into a car dealership and last time I got hosed, this time I want to negotiate more efficiently. You could look up notes related to negotiation or selling or communication or something like that and review those notes related to exactly what you're looking for. And I think that's a very useful system, just like Ryan and Robert, when they're looking for something related to a specific subject or person, it's all categorized, ready to go. And that's what makes their writing process, I think, probably more seamless than most. And so I try to do that with the notes that I have as well. And in the book, I talk about the concept of book sex as well, which is creating, taking two totally random notes and mashing them together and journaling about something that is brand new and novel. And I think that when you've organized your notes like that, it also is easier to pull totally two separate random things from different books in different years and 
create something new and fun from them. Mm-hmm. Um, the book sex is going to be my the last question I have for you today. I'm going to ask you a question about that. Well, the reason I ask you about the theming is because your book is, like I said, so tight with this information. I don't even know if there's like a, if there was like a mathematician, they could probably go through and see there's, I feel like there's a, every two pages, there's a really bitey thing, two pages, another bitey thing. And so I was wondering, did you do what they did where they take about a year to read a bunch of books on a theme and then they start organizing it while also taking what they've already had and then structured out and then doing the no card thing where they organize it up? I'm just curious about the meta-ness of how you made this book so tight. No, I didn't. I wish I did. I did a little bit of a version of that. So at first I was presented with an opportunity from one of our, our referral partners. They're called book launchers. And they said, Hey, Nick, we help people write book. They had been funneling some authors towards us. And they said, Hey, if you ever want to write a book, let us know. We'd be happy to sponsor it, work with you on it. You can go through our process in exchange for an ad in the back of the book for our business. I said, yeah, sure. That's a $30,000 value. Let's do it. And so when I was thinking about what I wanted to write, this problem had become very apparent in my community. There's a gap between reading a book and the results that you can get from it, implementing it. And so I'm like, okay, that's the problem that I want to address. And I want to pack in all these other questions that I continue to get through Instagram and when I'm at conferences and other places. How do we decide what book to read? How do we set an intention? How do effective note-taking and reading techniques or note organization, the implementation of information. And I started to realize those were all the questions that people had. And what I did at first was I observed my own behavior, like from a third party perspective. And I said, what the heck am I doing each and every time I read these books to implement them so effectively? Because it's working for me. What's different in my process than everybody else? And so that was step one. And it's a, it is a little bit meta. But I had to, I'd never taken the time to articulate and define my own process. I was just doing it. And so that was step one. And then I realized over the years, I had been researching different areas of this process already. So I went back to some of those resources. Like Tim Ferriss, for instance, has a great video about his note-taking process. Ryan Holiday talks about his note-taking process. And tons of other people in my world talk about how they get more from the books they're reading. And so I've read some books too that I I referenced. Limitless by Jim Quick is about reading and learning comprehension. The Art of Learning by Joshua Waitskin is all about how to study something so intensely that it becomes part of your subconscious and a bunch of other reference materials. And so I just started with that outline of what's the process look like from starting a book to fully implementing it. Let me just name that process and then I'll build those resources into each section. And the last thing that I'll say on this ramble is that I do, so there's a Napoleon Hill quote, action is the real measure of intelligence. If you read these books and choose not to take action on them, nothing happens. So action is the missing piece. I wanted to make my book as actionable as humanly possible. I wanted to not cut the fluff, but I wanted to get to the point, short, Mm -hmm. choppy, punchy actionable. And I wanted to deliver as many of those aha moments as possible. I think the other thing that helped me with this, like your reaction is very similar to some of the early people that I've had read the book, which I really appreciate by the way, because that was my intention. When you've read your 10th or 20th book on culture, it's, there are thousands of books on culture. They all say something very similar. I hadn't found a book yet that was writing about how to retain and implement more from the books you're reading. So everything that I was saying was new, I think. A a lot of things that I'm saying are new for a reader, whereas you can't include all the kind of general punchy things in a culture book because people have already read them 10 times. So I don't know. It's a roundabout way of saying, I think the novelty of the book lent itself towards short, choppy, punchy. Mm-hmm. And I just, I get the most out of books that are like that too. And I always hate when there's too much fluff. Yeah, no, it was very much, it felt like a synthesis of many different things that so you're like constantly citing different resources and books. It's a book that if you want to find more books, it's a good book to read because there's so many books referenced. Uh, you're going to want to like any concept you enjoyed, you know where to go read more about it. In the book, there was something weird in the book that I've never seen in any other book. And maybe it's just because there's the arc. If it is, regardless, I think it's pretty smart. 
But in the book, it was at the end of section one or section two or whatever, literally said, stop, write a review. Like it, it just gives me feedback, et cetera. I've never seen anyone literally put that into the, into a book. And so I'm just curious if it's, if it's just for the arc regardless, I think it's smart. I'm just curious what the, the logic behind it. And is that going to be in the finished published book as well? Yeah, it is in the finished book. I've read hundreds and hundreds of these business and personal development books, and I've only ever seen it done one other time. So I, as uh, Austin Cleon would say, I stole like an artist. And so I repurposed it and I tried to make it mine, but similar to what that other author had done. In the world of, of publishing a book and marketing it efficiently, I think the number one thing that these authors struggle with is converting a reader to a reviewer. Mm-hmm. They don't want to make the ask. They don't have the data anyway, because Amazon has the data most of the time. And so converting somebody from a reader to a reviewer is the hardest thing to achieve, I think. But Amazon, as a platform with its own algorithms, heavily weights a review. Mm -hmm. So the more reviews you can collect, the more a book will perform within the Amazon ecosystem. SEO, how high it's ranked on a page, the whole nine. And I stole that, but... And I, I reworked it and I think it will become more popular over time. I think you'll probably start to see some authors doing it. I've, like I said, I've only seen it once, but so far for that other book that I took it from, it worked really well for that author. Mm-hmm. No, I, I liked it. It was like, oh yeah, that's right. I probably should remember to write a review. It was very smart. I was just like, I literally wrote that as soon as I saw it. I was like, this is, this is the smartest little uh, bit of a thing I've seen in a while because there's a, a, a tendency to just keep going, not re- reflect not say thank you and write a review or whatever, even if you are enjoying something. I think it just directly gives someone that reminder, especially right after they just enjoyed the first 20% of the book or whatever, which is a good time for an ask. If you ask, if I ask you for $5 and I just met you versus I'm going to pay you back and we've known each other for 10 years, you're most likely going to give me $5 if you me for a while, unless you're like really generous. You want to see what I'm going to do and you're, you're in a guinea, guinea pig move <laughs> in the first run. But yeah, no, I thought it was really smart. I, if I were to write a book, I'd do that as well. So it's definitely something I'm going to, I'm going to steal. So when it comes to arcs and getting reviews i had an indie publisher on any indie book writer on and he said that if he could get like a hundred reviews on day one it pretty much guaranteed him pretty much bestseller in his categories like very niche category and so i was wondering is there like a metric structure that you think about after gathering so much data if you can get 50 reviews from the first on day one day two three or whatever i know i think tim ferris said that if you could get like 20 books a day for the first like week and get on like the new and notable or something, but that was like five, 10 years ago. I'm just curious as someone who's current with all these things, what are some like the rules of thumb that you found? Yeah, I've been told from some people. So yes, I am on the book marketing side of things. A big number of my clients come to me after they put out a book. It doesn't sell. They don't hit any of those bestseller marks. And then we're picking up the pieces and revitalizing the book after it's been out for a couple of months. Now that I'm getting earlier into this process, I am realizing the importance of pre-orders, but also a bunch of launch week momentum. I think that if you can get a hundred reviews within the first month and you can mm-hmm. sell a thousand books within the first few months, then you're on the, you're in the kind of like upper echelons of author releases. The more activity you have, the more Amazon will naturally promote you because they want to promote things that sell. And so I've heard the number is 10,000 books. If you can get to 10,000 books, Amazon will essentially promote you for the rest of your life. And that's always the goal, but it's a very difficult goal to achieve. So yeah, I think 100 reviews within the first month is a great goal. I have pretty ambitious goals. (laughs) I think 100 reviews on day one, I should be able to hit that. That's what I'm hoping for. But I think 100 reviews for the average first-time author in the first month especially if they're self-published, indie published, that's a great goal to have. And it will put you into that upper echelon and Amazon will start to promote your stuff without you having to pay Amazon to promote your stuff. And that's where the good stuff starts to happen. To get on something like the New York Times list, you'd probably have to sell 8,000 copies during your pre-order period. So all of those technically ship on the first day which means that you've sold 8,000 books within a week. And they'll look at that first week sales number and you've got to sell at least 8,000 physical copies of the book to even be considered for the lower end of that list. For Wall Street Journal, which is another big publication, you have to sell about 3,500 
to be considered for the very bottom of their list, paper, physical book, all of pre-launch plus week one. And then for platforms like USA Today, which is another one, I think you could sell quite a bit less because they like their lists are the top 100 books of the week. And if you can sell a couple thousand books, maybe 2,000 books, you, you have a shot of getting on those lists. So yeah, it's funny how all of it works. And there's all these weird broken parts of the system, in my opinion. For example, if somebody bulk purchases 25 copies of your book on Amazon, that only counts for one purchase in the eyes of something like Wall Street Journal or New York Times, which doesn't make any sense to me. But yeah, there's a lot of weird nuances in the system. Do you think that there's SEO in a review? Is there a, do you think that matters in what they say? Yes. Yeah. So like having some type of not like coaching, but like, hey, if you were to leave a review, I really care about these four details. It's probably really useful because those are like the SEO yes. things that they can just copy and paste in. Yes. And if you could figure out, here's another hack for everybody. If you can figure out what the major objections or questions might be for somebody who chooses not to read your book and the reviews can address and overcome those objections for you, you'll increase your sales. That works for testimonials for business too. So let's say I used to just ask the authors that I was working with, hey, can you film a testimonial? And they'd say, yeah, sure. And they'd say whatever they wanted to say about the business. And then one day, this guy stopped me, Simon, and he said, dude, when you ask for a testimonial or a review, make sure that person overcomes an objection that you commonly face so that you can overcome that objection before you even get on a sales call. So for instance, let's say people talk about People talk about if we go out and film content with them, oh, I don't know, I'm going to be scared on camera. These people might judge me. For instance, let's say that's an objection. In the testimonials that we film, the author will say, listen, I was a little worried about feeling awkward on camera, but this team made me feel like a million bucks, right? You're having your customers overcome those objections for you. And yes, I think SEO matters, but I also think that people are going to read them and you want those reviews to help them out. Double yeah. down on the good and, and help you eliminate the bad. The, and then for the 10,000 books on Amazon for them to promote you for life, are you, is it like a business goal of yours to get a sufficient library of books that you've brought to 10,000 so you can test that out? Like no, every but business kind of needs, it should be. Yeah, yeah every business needs a, a, a thing. And so that seems like one of those big ones. Yeah, that's a good idea. I don't think book sales, it's not always the... It's not always what we're optimizing for, right? Yeah. Because these people, like the right book could lead to a $25,000 keynote for the right person. Mm -hmm. And so it's about getting the book in front of a targeted group of people instead of just as many copies as possible. But I think as my business grows over time, we'll start to add some things like that. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. And then, so you mentioned you make a physical book and there's artwork in, in conjunction with books. And so everyone has their own way of doing things. I remember how Tim Ferriss, I'm curious, do you do the Amazon service for making a physical book? Have you put really a lot of thought? I, for instance, I really like how Brian Holiday's and Rob Green's books are. There's Rob Green's are like pretty and how the different colors and stuff is really easy to segment when you're looking at it. Is there, do you do intentionality in terms of how you've made your book? Is that a component of what you do either for yourself or for the, for, for people so they can get that extra texture there? Or is that just an, you export it to what Amazon does for fulfillment of books. I worked with a company called Book Launchers on the design and layout of my book. I was not as intentional as I wanted to be because just like you, I love Robert Greene's books. There's color, there's design, there's margin stories. It's a beautiful book. It's different. And as a result, it has word of mouth potential, which is really important for a book. People want to share it with each other. I didn't end up doing that with this book, but I think book thinkers could get involved in doing that for people in the future. I would love, you know how you had mentioned that the book was actionable and there was something on every page that, or every other page that you thought was valuable. I envision a, a future business service where we can go to some of these best-selling books and not necessarily cut them down, but make them more actionable. Because I think there are a lot of amazing books that they miss the mark because they're too dense or the language is too complex or they're not actionable enough. They're not intentional with the language they're using. They're not fast paced. They're slow. Too much storytelling. That plus design, I think, could be a service that we offer in the future too, just like the 10,000 book thing as a measurable. Mm -hmm. 
I think the an idea I had while reading your book is I kept waiting for there to be a tear mark near every single one of the takeaways. Oh. Just tear this out and hashtag it to this thing as like a marketing thing. I was just like, I thought that'd be, I just kept waiting for like this, tear this page out. Was this good enough or whatever every now and again? Because I don't know. Because the it's like one of those like purple elephant things. Because tearing out a, a page offends people so much. I like that you're writing this down. <laughs> tearing out a page offends people so much. I just imagine if you get like 10 people to do it, then there'd be a hundred people to do it or like a thousand people to do it. And then it would just, it's just enough of oil on the skin where I think people would keep telling other people about it. And then they keep tearing it out. Lowell Thompson, you're going to make me some money, my friend. I'm 100% going to do that. So here's the thing is, although my book is being published by Reading Revolution Publishing, I own Reading Revolution Publishing. And so I do own the IP to this book and I have complete control over it as it moves forward. And you, as long as you update, so I am leveraging Amazon's print-on-demand services, which is great because then you don't have to pre-purchase 10,000 copies of your own book and sell them. As long as I think you change less than 10% of a book, it can stay under the same listing. And so, yeah, maybe adding a bunch of tear mark layout design features mm -hmm. into the book. That's a really cool example. Another thing that I wanted to do different, but I was, I didn't follow through with two things that I'll mention that I was talked out of by people who are in the industry with a little bit more experience than me. One was I wanted to do the, the chapters backwards. So just number them backwards with the idea that beginning with the end in mind is really important. So I think sometimes people lose steam as they work up chapter numbers, but you could create this feeling of momentum down to chapter one, if chapter one was 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, and then you're working towards the end, I think that could have, maybe I'll still do it. Not for you this. Test it. First, yeah, you could test. You have 500 books that you're going to give away. Just have 250 normal and 250 not normal, and then have a slight different recommendation in terms of how people really review so you can track it. Yeah, or that would be you, great. You can just, you can A and B test it. Cause I, I think, uh, I was looking at your website earlier. I think you're still doing that. So you just, just change those two. Yeah. Uh, I love I that idea. And I'll throw one more at you too, that I was thinking, I was like, when a book is out in the real world, there are some book covers that are very recognizable. Think for our work week or something like that. Normally I could spot that on somebody's shelves, but the back of a book is people don't buy in bookstores. They do, but people don't buy in bookstores very much anymore. And so I'm like, if 90% of my purchases are going to come online, why don't I do something fun with the back of the book so that when it's out in the wild, in the real world, it catches attention instead of people just glossing over it, like in big, bold letters, read this book or ask me about this book or something like that. And, or like a really fun image, or I don't know, I'll, I'll put more thought into that. But yeah, all these design elements, I think they matter and I will continue. I'm 29. I think over the next 40 years, I'll continue to learn like really fun book marketing tactics like that tear mark. That's such a good idea. Tear here, yeah. like the little dotted scissor line across yeah. the inside of the page. Yeah. It's cheap. It's cheap ink wise. The, the back of the, yeah, I could see the back of the cover being something you could experiment with. I was just thinking like, how would I apply <laughs> becoming a one trick pony? How would I apply the tearing thing to the back? They have a bunch of different half covered things where it, it gives you the creates a curiosity deficit. So then you're like, oh, what is the going slow? What's like, there's actually a quote I can pull from. Slow and steady does not always win the race. So you can do slow and steady and then have has DO and then it's cut off and it's torn art. So you have a bunch of the almost mm. like dacked up as if someone tore apart your book and left it there as the back back of it. A book designed to be torn apart or, or something like that could be the back cover. Mm. I could see that being fun. The, Write that down I, too. Yes, trademarked. But so for, for building a platform, I think one of the things that you talk about is you got, I think it's one about a million people on a month. I think it's probably like visitors to your website, everything aggregated together. What were some of the strategies? I think one of the big ones that you mentioned earlier, is like the third door and all these really big people to get people to come to you and see you as a, an authority in, these, in this area. Were there other strategies you used to get such a mass of people to want to go to your website and to see and view your content that you work on? Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. The million impressions a month that we do is mostly through social media podcasting and our website. So I mentioned one, which was the third door piece. And, and the way that I'll re-articulate that is borrowing credibility. So you're borrowing the credibility of people who have these big platforms, you're featuring them in your content, you're hoping that they repost it 
for their audience. And again, because trust is transitive, if Grant is sharing a picture of me and him hanging out, his audience, which he spent a lot of time and money building, is likely to follow me. So I think that's one piece of it. I'll mention another strategy, which was really important for me early on, getting some early momentum. It's a Gary Vaynerchuk strategy called the $1.80 method. Mm -hmm. And so are you familiar with it? Yes. Okay, cool. I doubt other so, people are, so it's okay. Yes, true. Audience, are you familiar with the saying two cents, your two cents? Mm -hmm. It just means your feedback, your opinion, your thoughts on a subject. What Gary says is go into a platform like Instagram, search a hashtag related to your niche where you know your target follower is hanging out. So for me, I could search hashtag rich dad, poor dad, and mm -hmm. a thousand posts are going to pop up or a million posts are going to pop up. And you can toggle between most recent posts, trending posts, jump onto the trending ones and comment on the top nine. Leave your two cents. Not a fire fire emoji, but like a genuine paragraph of information. And a couple of things will happen. If you do that 90 times a day on 90 pieces of content, so 10 hashtags, top nine trending posts on each hashtag, a genuine piece of two cents, the math works out to $1.80. But here are the magic things that happen. Number one, the law of reciprocity. When you're leaving a genuine big comment on someone's page, at the very least, they're going to click on the account that left them that comment and they're going to check out your page. And if you're providing value, they might follow you. As your account gets bigger, the likelihood that they follow you gets bigger as well. Number two, you're consuming 90 pieces of trending content per day in your niche. So over the course of weeks, months, years doing this strategy, you'll end up consuming thousands and thousands of pieces of trending content. So you can steal like an artist, you can recreate what you know is working and start to understand what's the common thread between everything that's trending. Number three, when you're in that comment section, like every other single comment, because if somebody's engaging with something that already fits with your target, give them that little notification. And by the way, your big comment, Instagram and Facebook and some of these platforms, they wait these comments. They want to feature stuff up at the top that matters. And so your comments, unless somebody else has pinned something, will typically sit at the top of that comment section. And as those posts are being seen by other people, you're also being seen and discovered. So I love that strategy because you're also you're attracting people through that reciprocity who are going to want to comment on your stuff in the future as well. And all of that together has generated the following that we have today. I did it from zero to 100 followers, 100 to 1,000, 1,000 to 25,000, and all the way up to where we are today. And like I said too, the, the more often you do that and the bigger your following gets, the more likely somebody is to follow you when you leave them a genuine comment on their post. If Gary V comments on your post, right? Out of the blue, you're like, holy smokes, you're going to follow him. So just as you continue to get bigger, the likelihood that people follow you gets bigger too. And I think that's where most of the original attention came from. And one of the strategies that my team still implements for us today. Yeah. The, it sounds like I need to get on Instagram. I haven't. People keep talking to me. I, so I got into, I made one, but I'm probably going to copy what Ryan does. Ryan Holiday does with his, because I have a, mainly just a podcast. I've been on Instagram a little bit. I, all, my whole feed is just food. So I don't think I'm doing it right. I'm a hungry <laughs> guy, but, but it does sound like there's a lot of utility there. I'm gonna have to check out. Um, I think one thing to note here for people listening who want to do this in some form, um, there was no mention of having a, Hey, check out my website at the end or anything like that. It was just a pure comment. I think sometimes people try to turn it a little too fast. They don't let something breathe. So I just want to highlight that as well in this dollar dollar ninety thing. Uh, is it's not like, hey, here's this great comment, and oh, here's my newsletter and the three free free ebook. There was a person I had on the show, I had on the show who every time someone commented, he was like, oh, here's a free ebook. So it probably sounds like you want to steal their identity, like a phishing <laughs> attempt. So, oh yeah, we probably shouldn't do that. But we've been talking about your business this, this thus far, the the marketing consulting for books, and so I wanted to talk about some of the different things that you do for people, and are you. I guess on a high level, is there anything that you're experimenting that you feel more uh, comfortable experimenting on yourself as now that you're bringing out your new book that just before this this call, I literally got an email saying, hey, pre-order, man, it's the, t it's the time. So it's pretty reticent that you're, but sometimes people are more willing to test stuff out on themselves before guinea pigging some businesses sometimes. 
Is there anything that you guys offer that you're doing for that you don't offer that you're doing for yourself to test out if it's something you're going to apply to other people? Yes, there are a few things. Influencer partnerships, that's something that we're testing out. Book thinkers in the world of bookstagram, right? All of these book accounts, book review accounts on social media, they can sell a lot of books. And we do post book reviews. I'm paid to review books for our audience. But getting featured on other shows, getting featured on other major book accounts, like we're working behind the scenes right now to understand everybody's pricing so that maybe we could build this big offer where you're featured on 20 or 30 different book accounts all during your launch week and mm-hmm. seeing what that pricing might look like. And I'm, I'm getting creative with how I can get all those services for free, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is fun, offering alternative value and stuff like that. Because listen, sometimes just to get your book posted on somebody's account on Instagram, it's thousands of dollars just for a post. And mm-hmm. so how can we build this big omnipresence type of feel and build a service where you pay us, we take care of the logistics in the background, and 20 or 30 of the world's 50, maybe top 50 accounts all post your book within the same week and just create that feeling of this book is everywhere. I must get it. So that's something that we're testing out for me that isn't a service that I'm aware of just yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know the similar to that concept is this idea of getting people on podcasts, etc. Et so then they can earn a share or what have you. I know that the people who contact me, I get a hundred of those a day. They need to fuck off. But, but I've asked them how much they charge or like they'll connect you with someone. I ask them how much they charge. It's only three to $500, but then they not only it's covered a lot of money, but the, for the average American, but the, they, for that price point, they only do three to five a month. So like three, three to 500 bucks and they get on three podcasts a month. So if you could blitz them on a much larger audience and focused audience in the different niches that you have, I imagine that'd be extremely valuable and useful to people at the same time, because it's all going to people that actually want to hear the type of thing. Can I share a crazy number with you? Sure. I, and by the way, the reason that I don't typically share this, but you're a very logical guy, so I'm happy to share it because I I don't want people to think like everything's transactional in my life, but I have about 150 podcast interviews that will be going live for this book. And yeah, it's a lot of shows, but everybody asks different questions. I'm engaged and it brings me energy, like meeting you and hanging out with you today. It brings me a lot of energy, but that's a strategy. 150 shows going live to different audiences all over the place in the same focused period of time is very similar to what you're talking about. And BookThinkers does offer podcast booking as a service to authors. And I'm trialing like this big pre-launch recording blitz all coming out in the same period of time yeah it's a lot of fun yeah if, if you ever want feedback on how other people do the bookings because I, I have i have many strong opinions on it mainly hate there was one group i think it's like kickcast or whatever i don't mind do- uh, doxing on this because they were terrible there was 11 or 14 individual people emailing me suggestions oh, on who should be on the show so each person has three suggestions and sometimes they overlap i was like if you put an excel spreadsheet i'll consider this they'll go like, oh, we don't do that but you'll email me 12 to 14 people email me a day. I just, I, I like started just blocking their whole address. And I messaged the CEO and was like, oh, that's not our intention. We don't mean to do that. And then I still like a month later got, but anyway, say so if you want some feedback, I'm happy to talk to you about uh, that. So you can better, better tail it from the receiver. So they want to have that content come their way. Hey, as but, a podcast host too, like that's why I started the service because yeah. most of them are garbage. Just like you're talking yeah. about it. It's embarrassing. So I'm right there with you. Yeah, it was a, it was a little, it's really, come on. That's, that's that's some everyone's getting paid to do that 12 to 14 people getting paid to do those bookings that's a lot of waste because i just got pissed off at everyone but so i know we're coming to the end one thing that i wanted to ask you about so you said think of grow rich by napoleon hill that you came away with it like a hundred different notes and i'm curious at what point in your life that you read this but what were some of the notable notes that you remember from that book because i remember reading that book and i felt I felt like he got to the point in the first 10 pages and then the rest of the book was just like beating your head. He was like kind of Rand. Ayn Rand makes her point the first 10 pages. And so I'm curious by page 90 on what were you still finding? <laughs> Not in a mean way, but like, what was I missing by stopping on page 97 that was going to be there on page 400 that you saw that, that was available? Like, what were some of those notes? Yeah, what I think the context that I talk about that book was that I had too many takeaways and it was yes. unrealistic to think that I could implement all of them. And by being more intentional 
with what you're looking to get out of a book, you take better action and actually increase your attention by attempting to learn less. And so not that much. I mentioned that quote that I really love. Action is the real measure of intelligence. That's a Napoleon Hill quote. But I didn't, and I read it so early in my journey that I didn't have many of these retention strategies available to me or anything like that yet. You're right. I think that's a book that says the same thing over and over again. And repetition is a form of retention. Mm -hmm. If you can study something so intensely, it can become part of your subconscious because you strengthen that connection to the information and, and where it's organized in your brain. But you're right. I, it, that book, I think, came out in 1923 or something like that. It's been, a, oh yeah, it's been like 100 years, maybe right now. I'll have to Google yeah. when that came out, or you can, but yeah, not much, I'd say. Yeah. You probably do get the first, most of it in the first 10 pages. Yeah. And so then the question, so two questions left. But you built a business, you wrote your own book. What are there book recommendations specifically for someone that, so if someone was replicating the success you've had in business, the things that you understand, the things that you know, what books would you recommend to that person, to someone listening in who wants maybe not to build your business because no one wants to copycat, but wants to build their own business? And the people who are listening in are typically millennials, though there's 25%, they're above 65, but they can be, uh, uh, Colonel Sanders was 65 before he made any money. Yes. And with the invention of the World Wide Web, people can work from behind a laptop and, and build beautiful things in a short period of time too. I have so many business mm-hmm. book recommendations, but we'll go through different stages. So if you're just in the idea stage and you're just getting started, I recommend a book called Zero to One by Peter Thiel. A business is official the minute that your account goes from $0 to $1. When $1 transfers from somebody else's bank account into your bank account, that's it. And then you just have to iterate from there, build bigger services, improve your delivery, everything else. But Zero to One by Peter Thiel, that's a great recommendation. In that same kind of time period, I recommend a book called The Lean Startup. Mm -hmm. So that's a really good one by Eric Ries. And I recommend... Once you've started to get a little bit of traction, I recommend the E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber. He talks about building systems, automation, delegation, elimination, the difference between somebody who's a worker versus a manager versus an entrepreneur and visionary. And I think those are really important things to understand. In that same bucket of time, I recommend reading Built to Serve by Evan Carmichael so that you can start to articulate your purpose to your audience and to your customers. And you can start to go from just like having customers to building a community. And I think that's really important for a small business owner. And then as you start to level up, I recommend Alex Hormozzi's books, $100 million leads and $100 million offers. They're very powerful business books, mostly for service-based businesses, but also for product-based businesses. And if you read all of those books right there, you're off and running and things are happening and you're making money. Mm. One more meta recommendation is Profit First by Mike Michalowicz. I think understanding the way that money works within a business is really important too. And that is a behavior change personal finance book. It's a really good one. Our business finance book. It's a really good one. Sweet. A book I recommend to you because I'm reading it right now. And I think it goes into your idea of deletion and paring things down. It's the new book by Walter Isaacson about Elon Musk. In there, he talks about the logic behind how Elon fires people or hires people and stuff. For instance, like the idea is to, if you don't bring, if you don't bring it, if you delete something and you don't bring back at least 20%, okay, you're on. I don't have to say anymore. Uh, <laughs> no, keep then, going because uh, the audience probably hasn't read it yet. Yeah, it's interesting to get it. It's probably his best written book. And I have two versions of Walter Isaacson's Ben Franklin next to me. That I, That's how much I love Walter Isaacson's Ben Franklin, but I also love Ben Franklin. I think it's probably his best written book so far. I just really like the way Elon Musk talks about minimalism as it relates to planning and executing things. And one of them is like Twitter and how he fired people. One rule of thumb is basically if you don't, when you delete something, if you don't bring back like 20% or whatever of what it was, you didn't delete enough. This is like a thing, like you want to delete so it hurts and then you want to bring it back a little bit. And that's how you know, because you only bring back what's important. But so the last question I have for you is book sex. What books are having sex in your head right now? It's <laughs> a great way to phrase that question. Oh man. I am listening to, and the reason I decided to listen to it is because I've been spending a bunch of time in the car over the last two weeks, but I love listening to biographies, 
especially Walter bio- Walter Isaacson's biographies. I've read Benjamin Franklin, Leonardo da Vinci, Steve Jobs, a couple of the other ones. And what a wonderful biographer. So yeah, I have been thinking a lot about Elon Musk right now. And I'd have to be a little bit more intentional because books haven't been having sex. Oh, we could think about my book too. Okay. So let's have sex in real time right now, you and me. <laughs> Rise That's of the reader. Be beginning. <laughs> Put that in the beginning. Of the episode. <laughs> time to talk about sex. Yeah. Yeah. I've never had sex on a podcast before. Okay. Back to seriousness. So we'll talk about Rise of the Reader and we'll talk about Elon Musk and we'll mash them together. I'm still early in the book, but I find it fascinating how Elon would become completely absorbed with books. He would be so focused that people could bump into him, knock him over, shake him, and he'd still be focused on the book. They talked about how he'd wander into a library when they were traveling and they'd have to go to the local bookstore and like literally remove Elon from reading these books. And that's how much attention he had. One of the things that I only mentioned very briefly in my book, but reading physical paper books is a form of monotasking. It's Mm -hmm. building attention and focus. And we live in a society today where people are just scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. It's probably good that you're not on Instagram and TikTok because it can waste a lot of your time. And just if you want to be like Elon Musk, you should read physical paper books and you should become obsessed with it and build the ability to cultivate attention and discipline because that's transferable to other areas of your life. And then I'd probably go on and journal about that, create some cool social media content from it or write something about it. If you want to be like Elon, you've got to read more books and get lost in them. hmm. I don't know if I'm entirely satisfied with that answer because it could have been way more constructive what I talk about in my book, but Good enough for now. Yeah, you're Mark Twain in it, right? Sorry for the long letter. I didn't have enough time to write you a short one. So we don't have the time to be as... I imagine you've spent considerable time writing the book. So then that was my last question. So I will stop. And I got you out of here. 